1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, It seems like not a day goes by that we don't have some major headlines in political news to discuss on this show, and today is absolutely no exception. Uh, major stories have developed over the last 24 hours. Let's get right to it by introducing the panel and beginning our conversation. It's Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, the senior reporter for the Atlanta journal Constitution, is with us. Uh, Tamar, it's great to have you here, and by the way, thank you uh, for filling in for me while I was off in uh, Colorado. I, I know you did at least one show, and I'm really grateful to you for doing that.
2: Well, thank you for having me step in. It's a ton of fun, but I always think you make it look so easy, and you never fully appreciate it <laughs> until you sit in that chair. So thank you for what you well,
1: do. One quick note. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure we've ever talked about the fact that you do have a background in radio,
2: Yeah, but in college, internship, never kind of a full-time professional thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, but the point is, you do a really great job, and I'm glad that we can call on you on occasion. Uh, We're joined by Emma Hurt. She's a reporter for Axios Atlanta. Big news this past week, Emma, Axios has been bought by Cox Communications, and uh, so you and Tamar essentially now report to the same (laughs) Manage, high- level management teams
0: <laughs> seems to be that way uh yeah nice nice to have a broader corporate cousin family now um yes yeah, been it's been kind of wild wasn't expecting this when I joined axios but here we are and uh it'll be exciting I think I mean I think for you know years out everything is supposed to be um fully editorially independent um but who
1: knows what the future holds. Well, as a former employee of Cox at, when I was at WSB TV, I can tell you, you have a great corporate overseer at this point. They're a pretty pretty special company. Adam Van Brimmer is with us. He's the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Adam, how how are things in Savannah today?
3: We're doing very well, Bill. I, I really appreciate you having me on. I do want to take an opportunity to say that My role has changed, so I'm no longer an editorial page editor. I am now an opinion columnist, and then I help on the news side with some editing. So just as a point of clarification for everybody, because I know everybody cares about that kind of stuff. Not really, but I appreciate you having me.
1: Thank you. You Well, thank (laughs) you for that. I I hadn't realized that. Uh, but we will now start addressing you that way uh, when we have you on the show. It must be fun to be able to write opinion pieces and express your own feelings about big stories.
3: Uh, some days more than others. But, yes, it is uh, <laughs> It is good work if you can get it, to say the least.
1: <laughs> okay. And we're joined by uh, Rafael Oliveria, who uh, the last time uh, you were on the show, Rafael, we introduced you as a reporter at Univision. You have changed jobs you are now a fact checker uh, at a Spanish language fact checking organization and correct me if I pronounce it incorrectly fact chequeado do I have that right
4: Almost right uh, bill is a like check it fact chequeado like cheque with ado at the end but yeah um fa- and and but the, yeah I've, I've been changed and now with the uh, this guy, the work at the innovation was great and opened up, up the doors to an to this organization that it's the only organization that is entirely focused on finding and debunking disinformation in spanish and even though that and i'm still in georgia and even though my eyes are focused on several misinformations all over the country uh, i'm still uh, paying attention to what's going on here and we're also w- working on stories related to georgia so yep i'm i'm still here and still paying attention to what's going on
1: well congratulations on the new uh position all right uh tomorrow you continue to be on the hottest beat in georgia politics in fact one of the hottest beats in american politics right now watching over the fulton county special grand jury Uh, investigating election interference. And a big, big story uh, broke yesterday. Uh, Rudolph Giuliani, who's scheduled to testify tomorrow and who we believe will be here to testify, has now been informed that he is a target of the investigation. Uh, Tamar, explain what that actually means. It doesn't mean he's certainly going to be indicted, but it raises the stakes that he may be, yes,
2: Yeah, it's basically a legal way of telling a witness to lawyer up and that you you might want to be extra careful about the language you're going to be using under oath when you testify to this grand jury. And you're absolutely right, Bill. The DA could decide at the end of the day she doesn't feel like bringing charges. But it's sort of a signal based on the information that prosecutors have right now uh, that it's possible that that he You know, there might be enough out there for him to be charged with a crime. And look, he still is being forced to testify before the special grand jury. The Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney said he couldn't get out of that. He has to show up. But obviously, being a target very much changes how he might want to answer questions. So it might be a much shorter interview. He might be more compelled Mm -hmm. to plead the fifth, um, to cite more attorney-client privilege with his uh, former boss, Donald Trump. And so... Uh, it, it was already going to be a media circus tomorrow at the Fulton County Courthouse, but uh, this definitely uh, raises the stakes. I'm expecting many more reporters to come down from New York and D.C. to witness this moment.
1: tomorrow. I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds on this, but I am curious about one aspect of it. From the very beginning, we were told that this special grand jury would not have the power to indict what they would do is look at all the evidence that Fani Willis <laughs> and her team present and then make a recommendation about indictments for various individuals. So how does it work that we now know that we have Giuliani as a, an identified target, the fake electors uh, as identified as targets? Is it that the special grand jury, do we think, has already weighed in on what they think the recommendation should be on these individuals?
2: Thanks. So I think this is more of a signal from prosecutors and kind of what they've been able to to kind of get from the grand jury so far. I think of the grand jury as kind of this investigative body. They're able to subpoena for witnesses, subpoena for evidence and kind of collect that information on behalf, you know, to to kind of aid the DA's office. Um, You know, they're they're. Supposed to file this report before the end of their service, which is in May. We're expecting their work to end much earlier than that, likely by the end of the year, based on what uh, D.A. Willis has told me um, although it certainly shows just how close they're getting to former President Trump. We've kind of assumed that he's at the center all of, at all of this. Um, and, and if you think of it as a pyramid with, with Donald Trump at the top, they're getting really close once they start targeting folks like Rudy Giuliani, his personal ator- attorney, um, and, and wanting to talk to somebody like Lindsey Graham, a close confidant of his. As far as we know, Graham's lawyers have said he's not a target of the investigation, but still, this is a man who plays golf with the former president who talks to him all the time. Uh, It makes me wonder if the DA's office, how much closer they want to get. Are they going to reach into the former White House, start subpoenaing folks like Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff, or is Rudy Giuliani as close as they want to get?
1: Adam, the development of Giuliani being told he's a target is extraordinary because it's basically what Tamar just said. It's one thing when a Fulton County special grand jury looks at Georgia uh, uh, political leaders uh, like those fake electors um, and others. It's another thing when they get all the way up to Rudolph Giuliani, who I think inarguably is Donald Trump's top Attorney, and as Tamar points out, you're now looking at uh, John Eastman as a possible uh, target, someone who will they will call to testify. This becomes a, a a very important national story, Adam.
3: Yeah, and and this is really twofold in in my mind, and that's the fact that Giuliani came to Georgia and and met with members of the Georgia General Assembly in I think it would have been December of 2020. To throw out a lot of unsubstantiated claims and, and push those folks forward, looking at what their options might be to challenge the results in Georgia. So he was on the ground actively doing that here in Georgia. We know that. And then the other side of this is, is in terms of this grand jury and, and the testimony, is does anybody trust a word that comes out of Rudy Giuliani's mouth? I mean, that's really a lot of these these Trump cronies. The, the integrity is a word that they don't. Uh, it's not in their vocabulary. It's not in their understanding, and that's what really kind of gives me pause around all of these uh, all of these investigations. Is is they have no credibility. They have no integrity. And and where do we go from here? How do we hold them accountable? How should they be held accountable? Uh, of course, the the Fannie Willis has had her own issues, as we saw around trying to get the lieutenant governor candidate to testify so this this whole grand jury investigation it's 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 great theater but it gives me uh, it gives me a little bit of pause as as the Georgian and as a an observer of of what's going on.
1: Emma Hurt, Rudolph Giuliani's response to this is that we're living in a fascist state your thoughts?
0: And you know Lindsey Graham I think called it the weaponization of the law his subpoena that he's still fighting because he's going to appeal the Federal judges ruling that he must comply with it. Um, you know, it, it's as Tamar knows well, this, since this is happening behind closed doors, we're just looking for tiny little clues anywhere we can find them in the public record or in a hearing, for example. And one thing that, you know, I think has become clear in the federal hearing over Lindsey Graham's subpoena, um, over him trying to quash the subpoena, prosecutors said one thing they're interested in is coordination with the Trump campaign behind the scenes um, between Graham and the Trump campaign in the context of calls he made to Georgia election officials. And so it's those threads, those kind of uh, strings in the web, uh, parts of the pyramid, choose your metaphor here, that I'm paying attention to, particularly right now, is seeing, um, you know, how can we do, do they move further in that direction, as Jamar said, closer to President Trump.
1: Rafael,
4: Bill, and I'd like to add to this that um, from more of a global pr- perspective, everything that Giuliani said during 2020 became uh, news not only here in Georgia and all over the U.S., but if, you know, if you would look for it in in Spanish, in all over Latin America, there were news about Fulton County. There were news about the supposedly fraud and it had an impact on how uh, other countries were looking at the U.S. system. And the impact, and what I'm looking now, again, is how Georgia will also be seen from outside our borders, because what Giuliani did at the beginning had a great impact in making people who believe that the election was actually stolen uh, from other countries and it involved it them at the time. Uh, populist movements as well. So we will see how it also impacts and how it's viewed uh, from other countries and how it can also spread or if it will end some of the misinformation that's been floating around when it comes to Fulton County, even though it's been debunked many, many times.
1: Tamar, let's uh, look at a couple of other developments in the Fulton Grand Jury. Um, We've reported and you've reported yesterday that uh, uh, Lindsey Graham has been ordered by a district court judge, uh, Lee Martin May, uh, that he must testify to. But of course, he'll appeal that up. And I think it goes to the 11th Circuit, which is one of the most conservative federal courts in the United States. I think it's ranked as about third in terms of its conservative orientation. I want to
2: say six of the... 11 judges or about half of them were appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, But still, the folks that I've been talking to think that that Graham will lose this fight at the same time, I've learned to not be surprised by things so so much anymore. Uh, but but a couple kind of themes to pick up on. Uh, you know, I wrote in Sunday's paper about how this investigation is really hitting a much more combative phase. It feels like mm-hmm. the DA has kind of already gone through the more friendly witnesses, or at least the non-hostile ones. And the folks that are left as she gets closer and closer to the president are much more likely to fight her tooth and nail. And. The DA has to start thinking about things like timing. There's a midterm election coming up. There's the fact that uh, Donald Trump apparently is going is, is to mount a, an election bid for 2024. She's up again in 2024. She also has limited resources like her own money, you know, her own uh, taxpayer budget. And there's been a ton of criticism that she's focusing on Trump rather than fighting crime and going through the COVID backlog. So she has a lot of considerations to make as she fights for people like Lindsey Graham to come in and testify. Um, there's something that Emma said that I want to come back to. She mentioned this idea of Um, You know, that that we saw from Lindsey Graham, prosecutors want to talk to him about potential coordination with the, the Trump campaign. And that's been very much a theme that we've seen in people's subpoenas and in filings from the DA's office as they've fought to get various witnesses to appear before the grand jury. It seems that they're very much focused on this idea of a coordinated effort that kind of emanated from the Trump campaign and ended up bringing in all of these parties locally in Georgia. The D.A. has mentioned that she's looking at charges like conspiracy, like racketeering. And that would be an easy way to pull together all of these disparate threads. When you start talking about the fake electors, you start talking about somebody like Lindsey Graham, um, these Giuliani hearings. So that's something to watch.
1: Adam, we should point out that Lindsey Graham (coughs) and Brad Raffensperger, we believe, have told very different stories about the Lindsey Graham phone calls to the secretary of state's office. Um, Lindsey Graham says he was just talking to Raffensberger in his role as chair of as a a ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, He was uh, interested in just hearing how the election unfolded, how they were handling absentee ballots. Secretary of State's office says uh, he was going a little further than that. He was actually suggesting we might want to review absentee ballots to see whether they could be thrown out or whether they were legitimate. So that's a thread of this, Adam, that we'll be following closely in the weeks and months ahead.
3: As we should be. And it begs the question of, obviously, Secretary of State Raffensperger is not a, is not above taping phone conversations, which he did with, with President Trump. And it'd be interesting to know if maybe they have a tape of the Lindsey Graham conversation to – and even if Graham is is correct in saying and how he – in his context of the conversation still, when you have somebody like Lindsey Graham calling you, it's almost implied – some of the stuff is implied. Now, obviously, that gives him a little bit of wiggle room, Mm -hmm. uh, Lindsey Graham a little bit of wiggle room. But when Lindsey Graham calls, you know his relationship with the president. You know the power he holds in the country, you know whether he directly leans on you or not you certainly are going to be feeling the pressure as Raffensberger has shared.
1: So, by the way, just to make a quick, uh, easy correction, at, at the time of that phone call, I guess Graham was still chair of the Judiciary Committee because it was before uh, we uh, we had the, Republic, the Democrats take over uh, control of the U.S. Senate. So he was chair at the time. Emma, uh, uh, you know, Tamar talks about um, how things are getting tougher For Fonnie Willis, so far, she's pretty well stood her ground. Her office uh, has really been tough in demanding that people testify, that they are going to proceed with this uh, uh, investigation. Uh, At the same time, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has now filed um, articles of impeachment in the federal uh, 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 probe that's going on right now um, in terms of the search of Mar-a-Lago And the reason I mention that now is these are kind of tied together closely, I think, in the minds of people who follow politics. And uh, the effort to paint all of this, whether it's the grand jury here, the search of Mar-a-Lago, all of this is being painted by Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene as um, uh, political, uh, partisan and nothing more. Absolutely.
0: And it's... um... You know, I, I feel like we've said it over and over again in a way. It, it just, it's the same with the January 6th committee. Um, and it just speaks to, again, the influence that former President Trump still has among the base of the Republican Party. And these um, efforts, while those running them, you know, insist that they're not political, Christopher Wray is a Trump appointee at the FBI. Um, it, it doesn't really matter because the perception is there, um, and it's taken deep hold among a certain segment of Republicans. And, you know, to Marjorie Taylor Greene's in articles of impeachment against, um, Attorney General Merrick Garland, I mean, it makes me think back to, I think her first bill as a congresswoman was articles of impeachment of Joe Biden. So this is a, a theme of, um, you know, co- combative, um, and, uh, very public targeting of these top officials for political reasons as well
1: Raphael before we move on to another subject um, I want to ask you you uh, were born and grew up in Venezuela uh, you're very familiar with South American politics and uh, some of the uh, 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 you know the fluidity the um, difficulties of South American politics the um, I'm I'm st- searching for the right words here. You've seen juntas, you've seen uh, efforts to undermine democracy in South American politics. So I can't help but wonder the filter that you put through, you have on all of this as you watch it unfold here.
4: Some of the things that um, when you grow up outside of the U.S., some of the things that you think it will never happen in, in the U.S. It, those things happen in your country, in your neighboring countries, they don't happen here. That's the myth that at least we have. Um, and some of the uh, attitudes and uh, attacks on the uh, rule of law and, 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 and the rhetoric is something that uh, we are very familiar with. So it seems like a playbook that it's not entirely new. It's just uh, new to see it in the, the the United States. Um and you know and, in or and also with Martin Martin Green just I uh, believe yesterday, uh Representative uh, Judy Jody Hayes was also talking about that he didn't know that uh, probably the FBI uh planted evidence on on, on on President Trump, one of the main excuses that we've seen floating around. But um uh, yeah, it definitely seems like uh uh, that sort of rhetoric is something that we're very very familiar with, and uh, it kind of shows you how fragile uh, democracy actually is and how important it is for everyone to keep it in check and keep it alive because it can, it can be lost also here in the U.S.
1: Well, finally, with that in mind, Tamar, there is a movement, I and you can probably speak to whether there's any momentum at all behind it, but there are some right-wing Republicans who are now suggesting a recall effort to uh, uh, remove Fonnie Willis from office. And in many ways, they're looking at what happened in San Francisco, where the DA uh, was the uh, uh, object of a recall movement that succeeded there. Is this... Going to gain any steam as far as you can see, or is this really a fringe movement?
2: Right now, it feels like a bit of a fringe movement. Um, There are some kind of Trumpy wings of the Republican Party, uh, some of whom, many of whom do not live in Fulton County, who are talking about building an infrastructure for a recall effort. I spoke with Bill White, who um, was the kind of de facto head of the Buckhead City movement. He's allied with it, and he says that he's going to help them raise money. He insists he's not. Leading it, but he talked about setting up a infrastructure for a group within the next 30 days. They're trying to get big time GOP donors involved in the effort. He mentioned that they're trying to get um, Richie Greenberg, who. Um, it was heavily involved in the San Francisco recall effort and who um, is now involved in the effort in LA to get rid of their DA. They're they're hoping to attract him and bring him on board. Um, I spoke with Mr. Greenberg and he said he hasn't made a decision yet and he doesn't know enough information. So there's a lot of talk, but the reality is it's extremely hard to get a recall effort moving in Georgia. You need so many signatures. It's something like 250,000 mm-hmm. in Fulton County and only like 150,000 people voted for Donald Trump. In 2020, so it would be such a high bar, but I think what, the reason that Fonnie Willis needs to pay attention to this is it still has the potential to really rile up voters. Um, you know, it, it could hurt a potential jury, should this go to a jury trial, remember all it takes is for one juror to make it a hung jury, it just further sees doubt in her investigation and makes it seem like kind of more and more of a partisan witch hunt, which is something that they are studiously trying to avoid. And it just kind of hurts the credibility of the investigation.
1: Okay, um, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we've got another breaking uh, news story that I'd love to ask the panel about. Um, Georgia's abortion law is going to stay in place uh, uh, thanks to a ruling by Judge Robert McBurney while challenges to it move through the court. What are the implications of that? We'll discuss it and more on Political Rewind.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
1: Tamar Hallerman, Adam Van Brimmer joined me for uh, today's show. Adam, another story of some consequence. Uh, Yesterday, Fulton County Superior Court judge who has been asked by a group of uh, pro-choice advocates, including Sister Song, to uh, look at whether or not the new abortion law in Georgia violates the state constitution, uh, denied those uh, plaintiffs in the case a stay which would block the law until that case is decided, he said, no, uh, the abortion, almost virtual ban, six weeks uh, uh, restriction, uh, can remain in uh, place. Uh, So for the time being, the court challenge moves forward, but the law is in effect, Adam.
3: The constitutional challenge, of course, is kind of at the heart of what Jen Jordan is is saying in terms of the fact that she if she's elected attorney general will not uh, will not look to enforce that law but we're going to continue to see all these court challenges around the abortion law for obviously for the foreseeable future and in the meantime you have the actual practical effects of the law taking taking effect here in Savannah the the only abortion clinic closed I think it was either the day of the Supreme Court decision or in the days following the Supreme Court decision. So, the I think the intent of the law is already is already being felt, and right now it's you're just going to see a whole lot of legal challenges, and and then of course we'll see how the election plays out. Of course, everybody talks about if Stacey Abrams wins that that will have an impact we got to remember that the General, Georgia General Assembly makes the laws, and they are almost certainly – the Republicans are going to stay in control of uh, the Georgia General Assembly. So we need to keep that in mind, and it's probably going to be a Washington issue at some point. And, of course, we know trying to get 60 votes in the Senate is, is near impossible. So that's kind of where we are in terms of that, I would say.
1: Emma?
0: Yeah. I mean it's important to know what Adam said about the General Assembly <clears> – <throat> Uh, regardless of who's elected governor. And that's why this, these court challenges are continuing. Advocates know that this is really their best chance against this law right now. And so we've seen this state court level push after the federal court um, upheld the law. And, you know, important to note that in the ruling yesterday, Judge McBurney, said he was making no findings on the merits of the, legis- of the, quote, important litigation, that the constitutionality remains an open question, but he just said he, he doesn't see a way for him to legally uh, block it in the meantime. So that court challenge will continue. We presume it will probably end up in the Georgia state Supreme court. And, you know, I hear mixed things about how it fares there compared to federal court, but obviously a whole, um, A Consortium of Advocates is working together on this
1: legal challenge to to see it through. Yeah, um, Rafael, we should remind our listeners, we've talked about it before, that the challenges now coming out of Sister Song and the affiliated groups who are challenging the law are based on the fact that George's right to privacy um, enshrined in the state constitution uh, uh, is much stronger than the U.S. Constitution, and therefore these advocates for choice, believe that they have a much better chance of blocking the law in the state of Georgia. Raphael,
4: Yeah, it's interesting how we have seen uh, the whole state rights uh, flipped in some cases to use it now as an argument to pre-preserve the right to uh, an abortion. And, and also, you know, it, during this time, uh, we have to say it's been very confusing to many people in Georgia to understand what, what's going on with all this uh, challenges and to add to the global perspective of this, while well, well, we have this conversation in the in the U.S. in in, in South America, we've seen examples moving the, the opposite way, like Mexico or, or Argentina, or Colombia, where we've seen uh, the right to an abortion being getting expanded, while in the U.S. that right is getting uh, smaller and smaller and fragmented, depending on where you live. So it's also an important perspective to see how. Other countries see the the rights in the U.S. instead of expanding now moving in a different way.
1: Uh, Tamar uh, you've been following Judge McBurney pretty closely because he's his judge overseeing uh, the Fulton County Special Grand Jury and he's made a number of rulings of course in that case. Now here he is also the key figure in uh, the challenge to the Georgia abortion uh, law and the reason I mentioned it to you now is McBurney has this interesting way of sneaking in uh, into his opinions remarks that have a kind of a cutting edge to them or sort of suggest perhaps a direction he's headed. Now, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought he with the Lindsey Graham uh, ruling that Graham does have to testify he kind of said, well, he can have a lovely road trip coming down to Georgia if necessary. We talked about that yesterday. But here in the abortion ruling, here's his quote. He, he does say the court is making no finding on the merits of this important legislation. But then he goes on and he says, the question of whether it is constitutional for the state to force a woman, to force a woman to carry to term a six-week-old embryo against her wishes, even in the face of medical risk, remains to be answered. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but he has chosen some words there that probably uh, suggest he the way he leans personally, if not professionally, in this case.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of different points I, I want to make here. Uh, first, when you, it wasn't Lindsey Graham uh, last week who he talked about kind of getting on um, – Getting oh, Of course, it was Giuliani. Was Giuliani. Giuliani uh, just of to course, make that clear. <laughs> um, McBurney's a really respected guy. Pretty much every attorney I've ever talked to who's worked with him, you know, kind of prosecutors and criminal defense folks, he's super well respected. And what I appreciate about him as somebody who I've never really covered the court system before is he's very kind of clear. During hearings, he, he's very good at kind of breaking down really complex legal issues in kind of a really digestible way. And he's also pretty clear about how he's going to rule. He kind of tells you what he's going to do, whereas some others are kind of much more vague about it. Um, and yes, he does kind of manage to include some kind of sharp language in there while also being very friendly and approachable. But I will say, you know, you you highlighted this passage from this abortion, uh, you know, what he said about abortion yesterday. What I will say is he's a Fulton County Superior Court judge. They have to be kind of conservative with a small fee. They're not really there to kind of Rock the boat they're more of kind of a kind of they're not the ones making the big sweeping decisions when it comes to legal precedent that's left to the the uh, appeals courts and the supreme court so i think he kind of knows he's not going to be the last stop that this train is kind of taking and so um i i wonder how much he'll really be able to do here
1: okay well we will watch that unfold of course emma hurt you really uh uh I had a terrific story at Axios Atlanta yesterday. You've been talking to Republican state legislators. They wanted to be anonymous because what we what they were talking with you about is very charged in Republican circles. But you wrote that it appears that there are an increasing number of Republicans in the legislature who might be open to a much fuller expansion of Medicaid. Tell us more about what your reporting showed
0: yeah, and I think it's important to know the context of how I came to this story because some people have asked me who's pushing this, you know, who's behind this story? Who's selling you on this? And the answer is nobody because the reason why I started doing this story is, uh, my colleague in North Carolina broke the story there of their state Senate Republicans reversing on Medicaid expansion last session and almost passing it, um, passing it in one chamber and getting stalled at the very end, but looks likely to have new life next year. So it just got me asking, is the same thing happening here in one of the other 12 holdout non-expansion states? And while, as you said, everyone is very hesitant to speak on the record because of the political dynamics of talking about this as a Republican in an election year, in which Governor Brian Kemp has been very clear on his position against full expansion, um, people... We're answering yeah, yes. Yes, some people have changed their minds. Yes, I think there could be a new path forward on this issue that has been, you know, caught in political standoff for more than a decade now. So it's something to watch. I mean, very clear in the story that there's no like deal in the works. Nobody knows for sure if the votes are there. Lots of people have thoughts. Um, but it's something to watch. And I think part of the reason why I found that this might have changed here, just like it did in North Carolina, is the fact that the COVID-19 federal state of uh, public health emergency is going to expire at some point. And part of that state of emergency was an automatic expansion of Medicaid to an estimated, in Georgia, 250 to 450,000 people who would then have to come off the rolls when that expires, leaving um, you know, these people left in the lurch. So that's a new pressure. The political pressure has changed. And also the deal has gotten better for non-expansion states. After the 2021 um, American Rescue Plan, federal, they added a deal sweetener in for non-expansion states to, to provide even more money. So there are things that have changed new pressures, but we'll see. Again, as we know, this is a very politically sensitive issue.
1: Um, Adam, in addition to uh, people who spoke off the record or or for background uh, or background uh, uh, to Emma, uh, she also quoted uh, among others Brian Robinson, a fr- our friend, who's a Republican political consultant and worked with uh, Governor Nathan Deal, who opposed full expansion of Medicaid. And uh, Robinson, uh, Adam said to Emma that uh, that the initial fear that Republicans have had that the federal government would uh, start by giving its 90 percent matching funds and then pull back so the states are left holding the bag hasn't come to pass. And Robinson suggests that if they would expand, it would bring home hundreds of millions of dollars from a program that the state's already paying into. Your thoughts, Adam?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously, this has been a, a political issue for some time. You mentioned Governor Deal. And of course, the Georgia General Assembly moved to to strip powers from him in terms of, of Medicaid expansion and then reinstated it with Governor Kemp when he came up with the, the Medicaid waivers, which I think we, we can assume there was some action what last week in terms of the Affordable Care Act website. And we can assume that those waivers are probably going nowhere, at least until 2024. So it'll be interesting with all of the other issues that we have swirling in this election cycle to see how big a, a role Medicaid expansion plays. Uh, in 2018, of course, Stacey Abrams was really pushing hard for Medicaid expansion. It was at uh, almost at the core of what she was she was getting at. In, in this cycle, we've seen her take a little bit different tack in terms of economy and other things. But it'll be interesting to see if if Republicans do eventually start to uh, embrace that. I think that's uh, unlikely in the short term, but I think over time you will start to see more and more Republicans looking at states like Ohio, where Republicans have expanded it and had some success with it. Emma.
0: Yeah. I mean, the politics is difficult to ignore. Stacey Abrams, as we know, in 2018, this was a key part of her platform. It still is today. And it's because the polling shows that majority of Georgians and Americans uh, and Republicans in some polls uh, support the idea On on the waiver Program. I'll just add another reason. I heard that some minds have changed. Is if you look at the total cost of the governor's waiver plan, you know estimates vary on this, but the sort of most neutral estimates from state officials in the budget um, research office is that that cost could come to uh, more than full expansion, especially if the work requirement is thrown out, which looks to be likely. So. The, um, I've heard also the argument that with the waiver plan, uh, Governor Kemp has taken Georgia Republicans closer to Medicaid expansion by getting them used to the idea of partial expansion and that this was a huge step towards full expansion. Um, Much more to watch in this space, for sure.
2: But remember, you also have to look at it in terms of the elections that are coming up and kind of who you're going to be handing wins to. Um, So If you're a Republican, even if you are kind of warming up to the idea of expansion or or the fact that Kemp's waiver does get you kind of closer to that, or even if it is slightly cheaper to do a full expansion rather than the waiver, would you want to hand somebody like Stacey Abrams something that looks like a victory? Um, that they can then hold up in campaign ads for, for years to come. Remember, Republicans like Governor Kemp have been saying for years that this is too expensive, that this is another giant government mandate, that the private sector should be the ones driving this thing. Um, I think even though, even if people privately admit that they Think it's a better idea or that they should just go ahead and do that. I think there's just some politicking here that you also um, have to think about as well.
1: Rafael, how does this play in your constituency, the broader Hispanic community?
4: Well, it's uh, on 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 one hand, there are few that wouldn't pay that much of, of attention because you need to have a a status many, many times to actually. Uh, have these benefits, and others are afraid if they let, let's say they have the the chance because they have the status. Some of them are afraid to apply because of the public charge rule that became uh, uh, that became the rule during the former President Trump, and there's been a lot of conversation, and actually there's many uh, Hispanic outlets working on it to let them know that if they have a status, they can apply to certain benefits without risking their chances when it comes to getting a a green card because that public charge rule changed to invite them. But that was a fear that made many uh, immigrants, even if they qualified, not wanting to to benefit from it because they're afraid how it might affect them once they try to get a green card or a citizenship.
1: Okay, um, we got to get to our final break of the show when we come back. uh, Let's talk about Herschel Walker and the debate he wants to do in Savannah, which is different than the debate Raphael Warnock has agreed to in Savannah. Adam Van Brimmer can help us understand what's going on there. You're listening to Political Rewind. Okay, Adam Van Brimmer, um, let's set the stage. We know that early on in the uh, Senate race, uh, Raphael Warnock's campaign agreed to do three debates, um, and one of them was going to take place in Savannah. Uh, Herschel Walker and his campaign uh, continued to uh, ignore Requests for debates. They wouldn't comment on them. And so the Warnock campaign began attacking Walker uh, because they called him afraid to debate. So we've got that going. Now, Herschel Walker has agreed to do one debate in Savannah, but it's not the same Savannah debate that was included in the three that the Warnock campaign. Uh, had agreed to. What's going on here? What's the difference between the two Savannah debates? Why is the Walker campaign insisting on a different debate? Help us understand all this because you've written about it.
3: Right. This is certainly, this is gamesmanship at its best here. And that's really what it comes down to is uh, Walker, or I'm sorry, Warnock, as you said, agreed to do, uh, accepted invites to do three more traditional debates, Uh, win a press club, um I think one in make Macon maybe and then one here in savannah yeah. that was put on by uh put on by a television station that normally does debates WTOC, which they did a gubernatorial debate and uh so walker uh kind of ducked and dodged and Warnock decided to go on the offensive and and do some some humorous but somewhat juvenile things comparing uh walker to a kitten uh putting someone in a chicken suit outside of a walker. A campaign event basically alluding to the fact that he was afraid to face Warnock. So Walker, eventually his counter was to say, yeah, I'll do a debate with you, and we'll do it on my terms. And he proposed the one in Savannah with a different TV station, WSAV, which is the NBC affiliate. Uh, WTOC is the CBS affiliate. Here's the big difference between the two debates. WTOC, when they did the gubernatorial debate, did it in a studio, closed studio, nobody, not even like we, – we couldn't even send our reporter to the studio to watch the debate, to talk to the candidates afterward. They had complete control of the debate. Uh, if we're going to assume that's what they were going to do for the Senate, then the counter to that, the Walker's proposed debate with WSAV – is going to be in a large theater in front of a public crowd with the usual press events before and after to talk to the candidates. So that's kind of the the compare and contrast between the the two debates. And here we are, what, a couple weeks later. We haven't – Warnock has not accepted, and there's still some back and forth on where we are with the debate. My guess is we're not going to have a debate, but I hope I'm wrong because I would really enjoy being able to drive down the street and watch this debate.
1: I, Tamar, this, this seems, uh, I, I don't even know what to make of this. Is the Walker campaign simply trying to avoid debate at all and therefore uh, setting up this different uh, TV station as their preference? I mean, we really don't know. It's all speculative, uh, but it it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a bit kind of juvenile, all of it, like, and you're kind of playing these semantic games, like, well, but I technically agreed to a debate, even if it wasn't your debate. And it's in your backyard, so you should want to debate me here. And it kind of feels like who's going to blink first. I mean, obviously, Warnock very much wants to debate Herschel Walker to kind of show off his skills as a pastor and as somebody who's gotten to practice even more on the floor of the U.S. Senate. But is he going to go and back down on the commitments he's already made? Um you could argue that Walker maybe does not have an incentive to debate. He has not been as great on the stump and kind of off off the top of his head, but he also has promised for a long time that he wanted to debate Warnock and only Warnock. So this is kind of a way for him to be able to say that he was willing to do it without having to really agree to it. Um, I am curious to see if Warnock blinks, if it is worth it to him. Uh, And what I'm curious is how many voters actually care. I feel like back in the day, Debates were such a big deal, um, and that was something voters really used to help them form their opinion. It was kind of one of the only ways to really get to a broad audience. Social media has really democratized that and changed the game. Um, And I think there's some voters who, stuff like this still really matters, especially older ones. But I'm curious if it really registers for most others, or if they just say, this is politics as usual, tune out. Emma? Yeah, it's a very important point that Tamar just
0: made that I always think about when we get into this kind of... Like debate about debates issue, um, we journalists care about debates, uh, but that's uh, that's sort of, out of that's out of tradition and all these rules like reasons. But do normal do do voters do they pay attention um, to debates? Probably, probably largely no. But who knows? Um, that being said, I think if you look at the politics of this and what the Walker campaign has done, is it? Make strategically a lot of sense for them because, um, they can couch this as, you know, a fight against, uh, the, the media, um, left leaning TV channels, the press club, you know, it fits right in with, um, a strategy that we know has worked for other Republicans in terms of attacking the media. So at the same time, I think it's also noteworthy that because of the way this has gone down. It has become a topic of news. Therefore, we are talking about it here. And the other things that we had been talking about, with Herschel Walker particularly, are not quite at the top anymore. And I do think that's notable as well when we think about how this is playing out.
1: By the way, as a side note, Adam, I would like to point out that a man or a woman in a chicken suit following candidates around when they refuse to debate is a time-honored tradition in American politics, even at the presidential level. I personally remember the 1992 election between Clinton and Bush. Uh, Bush didn't want to debate. And so the Clinton campaign had a man in a chicken suit following him everywhere he went. And uh, he that chicken had in its mouth the sign that read, read my bu- beak, uh, Bush is afraid to uh, debate. Um, so let's move on to another aspect of the campaign uh, between Walker and Warnock tomorrow. There's an ad out that um, very, very powerful ad in many ways that uses a soundbite, from Herschel Walker's ex-wife, in which she describes an incident that's been reported on in the news pretty extensively—him threatening her with a gun, uh, his violent behavior toward her—it's—it's—it's it's a, it's a powerful ad. But now Herschel Walker has written a op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, in which he calls it shameful because he says that soundbite comes from a joint appearance that the two of them made on an ABC news program in which the two of them talked about how issues in mental health can, in fact, affect a marriage. Uh, I haven't watched that ABC interview, but if that's the case, um, I think it's a pretty interesting response. And it may be part of this whole overall campaign that Walker's running in terms of saying, yes, I've had mental health issues, I've done my best to deal with them, and I'm trying to move forward. Yes?
2: Yeah, and this is an issue where folks have had to tread really carefully here because on the one hand, yes, he's written a book and, and really kind of owned his past and some of the issues in it. But also there's plenty of folks who will note that this still raises a lot of questions about whether he's fit to serve in the U.S. Senate and whether you want somebody like that representing 10 million people. Uh, and, and you do have to be really careful here because you don't want to be seen as kind of knocking people for talking about mental illness. Uh, But also, some folks will say there are really valid questions being raised here. And certainly, this was a great uh, moment for for Walker to be able to kind of try and take the high ground here and take to the pages of the Wall Street Journal to do it.
1: It's a fascinating uh, race, Raphael, and I think we're going to watch it unfold. I will say there are some interesting developments going on. Uh, um, there's a major Republican organization that's pulling back some of its funding for its Senate candidates, um, including in the Pennsylvania race and others, uh, because they feel that their uh, opportunities to win those races are limited. But they're not doing that in Georgia. They're continuing to pour money into the Walker campaign. So they still see that as a pretty competitive seat, Raphael.
4: He'll do that, and uh, it's it's interesting how uh, polls have changed and how the attacks of Walker on on Walker have affected voters. And like uh, Tamar was saying, it was uh, it's they try to portray him as someone who's not fit for 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 Senate in the way that in a different way, like some are doing in 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 Pennsylvania and others. But still, he's a a a celebrity and he's still respected by many Georgians.
1: Rafael Oliveira gets the last word as we come to the end of the show. Emma Hurt, Adam Van Brimmer, Tamara Hallerman, thank you for a terrific conversation. I, I appreciated having all of you here today. We're back again with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, i Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>